0: Someone in uh, chat asked earlier if you think that anarchism is more of a philosophy than a political ideology.
1: Um, It can be both, I guess. And I think it would probably mm-hmm. vary. It depends on which anarchist you ask. For me, it's definitely both. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I think of it as like putting on different hats, I guess, or looking at things through different lenses. Yeah. Um, there's anarchist to me, like like when you talk about anarchist philosophy, uh, it's it's sort of, and this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier, like, like what i like about anarchist philosophy is it comes closer to approaching some questions like why you know why do we why would we organize society a certain way why would we make certain decisions Um, why would we want to live certain ways you know do things certain ways i think anarchism anarchist philosophy especially when you like strangely and i i don't see a lot of people talking about this but i think it dovetails very nicely with existentialism you Mm. know and, and, and because to me like the real root of the question why and, like, what – it all has to do with, like, meaning, you know. Yeah. And existentialists point out there is no inherent meaning in the universe. Your life doesn't have any inherent meaning, right? So mm. then the challenge, the the purpose for your existence is to build your own meaning in your life, right? That's, so then uh, anarchist philosophy
0: uh, – Nietzsche. Nietzschean.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, there's parts of Nietzsche that I make me cringe really hard. I mean, of course, he had a <laughs> weird kind of arc <laughs> in his – development of philosophy, but I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Nietzsche and Stirner that I completely vibe with, even though I hate the way both of them wrote. Like mm. Max Stirner and, and Nietzsche, when they write, it reminds me of like, it just feels like incel writing, you know, it's just like angry and like, and like edgelordy, but, but they made a lot of really good points also. Um, yeah. you know, I'm not an individualist anarchist, but I do have, um, I thought I turned that overlay off. Okay. But somebody subscribed to my channel. That's cool. Um, anyway, um, Uh, but, but, but yeah, I, I do think that it's our, it's, 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 I don't know. It's not like a privilege and it's not like a right or anything. It's just the fact that we don't have, the universe doesn't have any, I don't believe that God like wants us to have like a destiny. We don't have a destiny. Mm
0: -hmm. We
1: have to create our own, uh, reasons for existing on this planet. And so for me, anarchism as a philosophy, uh, provides me with the best roadmap on how the most people can choose our own destinies without uh, infringing on other people, without hurting yeah. each other's mellows. um you know, which i which I feel like is something that's missing from Marxist Leninism. So then there's also the political ideology and even like the um, the social uh, the sociology of anarchism, which Yochai Bankler talks a lot about, the sociological and psychological principles of anarchism. Uh, if you're if you're interested in that, um, he's a, he's a great professor who does a lot of comparative research, but you know um, you know anarchism is a, is a lot of things, but it certainly is an, an ideology as well, and it certainly has practical applications in terms of like how we build revolutions. Something mm-hmm. that Luna and I talk about a lot is that the anarchist revolution style, and Luna agrees with me on this. She's a Marxist Leninist, but she agrees that like the anarchist uh, decentralized version of revolution is probably probably uh, more better suited for the USA than, like, it was for Vietnam. And Vietnam, obviously, the Marxist-Leninist mode of revolution worked. They overthrew the French mm-hmm. and Japanese and American and Chinese domination, and they built their own nation, you know. So um, uh, they're kind of different, like – different like systems you know and i think that you could kind of they could borrow from each other they can interact with each other i don't see them as like walled gardens um you know what i mean that's the that's mm. the, like they're like i'll happily steal ideas and i think it's anarchistic to do so but it's also dialectical to do so you know it's so a dialectical materialism and anarchism i think both allow for stealing the best ideas wherever we find them there's this yeah. whole idea of like transcendent include which michael brooks talked about quite a bit um which is where you just like, anytime you meet a new idea that you're not familiar with, you try to find the best parts of it that you can incorporate into your ideology. And then the parts that you end up, you know, finding useless, you discard. And you just yeah. keep moving forward in that in that way. So um, I, uh, I don't know if I answered that question, but I tried. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: I mean, I agree with, with a lot of that. Especially the point about looking at different ideologies in different communities and taking what's good and discarding what's bad. Because I do that a lot sometimes that pisses people off like oh you say you're a marxist but you know you believe in this and this and i'm like yeah because it makes sense it's a good idea and they're like well it's not marxist and i'm like fuck you you can't contain me i'm not in your box right right but like one of the things that i you know because i'm not a marxist analyst but one of the things that i take from cuba that i really like is mass organizations um like the Cuba's uh, women's federation, the committees for the defense of the revolution, like the neighborhood watch kind of deal, and the trade union confederation, and the S- association of small farmers, and the students' unions—right, these ways to like create government-sponsored organizations which act like political parties, uh, but they're given certain privileges and they're made to empower certain demographics. I think that's a as an incredible idea to actually empower. Uh, different communities and to ensure that the that smaller demographics and minorities have a strong voice in your democratic system without necessarily uh you know making it a like non-proportional or like uh giving them more power than they should have right um we, like in accordance with their population right so that's something that i take from a marxist and society without myself being a marxist analyst um, but I think the anarchist philosophy is very interesting. And, and I, I do try to put on the anarchist lens sometimes. Um, like, usually my mindset is in terms of material reality and class, right? Yeah. So when analyzing a society, I look at which class is in power and how does it relate to the other class in society, right? Mm-hmm and uh that gets me far but sometimes i put on the anarchist lens and i and i look at which hierarchies exist within the society it's almost like like marxism is like the big picture and then and then i use anarchist which is like a x20 zoom lens (laughs) and i look at okay but within this class structure what are the other hierarchical structures because, right. you know, obviously, the vanguard party in Marxism-Leninism is a very hierarchical ideal. Is this idea that in order to overthrow the bourgeoisie, in order to lead the revolution and to have a socialist society, there needs to be this front organization, this top, uh, most educated, most well-organized Marxists are at the top, and they lead the rest of the proletarian masses forward right in in this revolution and then they kind of organize the society afterwards um which you know from a marxist ideal is like well if it puts the proletarian class into power then that's progressive but Mm -hmm. with the anarchist lens it's like well it's very hierarchical and is that hierarchy justified and then it's like well maybe not and maybe there are better ways to organize the va- the vaccine. Well,
1: yeah, so this is where things get... I mean, because I... Like, th- here's a great example, like a great practical example. I had people when... When when um, when COVID first started breaking out and I was watching what Vietnam was doing, I was freaking out because I was like, there's no way that the USA is going to know what the fuck to do in this situation. They're just like, nobody is prepared for it, right? Yeah. And I saw Vietnam and I was like, They're, they know exactly what to do. It was really impressive. Like, they just had a plan they put it into place and it worked and i was very impressed with it and i was just like and i was thinking and you could see i mean like we did live streams luna and i both we talked about it we we made videos about like and i was fucking panicking because i was like thousands of people are going to die you know in the usa and i was like my family might die my friends might die, you know what i mean so i was like so worried and so like my whole thing was i was just begging people to like look at what vietnam is doing and learn from them and do what they're doing you know, we have to have lockdowns. We have to shut down the economy. We have to put human lives before the economy or a lot of people are going to die. And mm-hmm. I am just like beating this drum. And a lot of anarchists – and this was early on, right? Like this is before we really knew what the hell was going on. You know what I mean? It was like still very early days. A lot of anarchists immediately pounced on me for saying that like I endorsed the idea of a lockdown. And they said that's like mm-hmm. very uh, authoritarian and hierarchical and blah, 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 right? But yeah. it's like – and it is it – is. Right. Mm-hmm. You got people like literally with guns who are saying you cannot leave your neighborhood. Right. Um, uh, and that is hierarchical and authoritarian. But to me, I, I, you have to do the calculus of like which there are so many different hierarchies with, you know, existing simultaneously. And to mm-hmm. me, the biggest form of coercive, dominating hierarchy is for a human being to lose their life. Yeah. Because another human being, you know, made that happen. Yeah, You know, whether it's murder or negligence or whatever. And if you have something like a pandemic where – like think about Vietnam. There are 93 million people in this country. There were only – I think that at that time there were only like 95,000 hospital beds. Mm-hmm. And if that disease breaks out in Vietnam, you know, potentially millions of people could die. Mm-hmm. um, and, and there's nothing that's going to make – you're not going to say anything to me to convince me. That your freedom to travel for two weeks, you know, the the duration of a quarantine is, you know, overrides the lives of thousands or maybe millions of people.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of those hierarchical
1: situations is way worse than the other.
0: On the one hand, you do have the potential for thousands or even millions of deaths. But on the other hand, have you considered that masks are actually unconstitutional? (laughs)
1: Right. See, that's the thing. Like, and I would, I, and I'm totally in favor of, I think that it, you know, we, at a certain point, this is actually something <laughs> I don't quote him very often, but something that Sam Cedar says a lot, which I think is a good point is that we get to decide what kind of society we live in. Mm-hmm. And I think if the majority of people decide we want to live in a society where we're not dying of a pandemic that becomes a justification. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a short-term justification or whatever. You know, we, we could talk all day about the different ins and outs and the details of how we do it. But that essentially creates the justification for creating a mask uh, ordinance or call it whatever you want. Um, but, you know, essentially forcing people to wear masks. And I think it's fair. You know, maybe we should have a, a maybe a, some kind of a valve where if people don't want to live in that society, I wouldn't stop them from leaving. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like if I lived in a, in my hypothetical anarchist utopia or whatever, and there were a bunch of people who were like anti-vaxxer, anti-maskers, and they didn't want to deal with it, then I would open the doors for them to leave. I don't think anybody should stop them from going. If they could find another place to live or if they could start their own society where they don't have to wear their masks and they could all die together in their death cult, I don't think that I would want to stop them from leaving to do that. But I think that if if me and most of my neighbors want to not die of COVID-19 we have the ability to create the kind of society we want to live in, democratically. I mean, that,
0: that is an interesting question, though. I mean, you wouldn't want to stop, stop them. But, I mean, what would you say to uh, people like Jim Jones and Jonestown and the People's Church and all that kind of stuff because he convinced <sighs> That's, yeah, I know you a lot I know of people saying. to come with him to Guyana and then once there he you know through saying you know through all these like religious stuff and 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 just tricking people and lying to them he told yeah. them to to kill themselves i don't i can't remember what it was if like the world is ending or like if they kill themselves now they're gonna yeah. be in heaven or something like that um I, for, I forget what the what the whole thing was but you know he it was voluntary people did go there voluntarily they chose to go there it was their their right to leave the country and to go to Guyana, you know, no one's stopping you from doing that. And then yeah. it was their choice to drink poison. Um, so is that allowed?
1: You know, should that That's a good be... question, you know, and and I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question. It's like, for instance, the whole thing with David Korish in Waco, Texas, um, if you're not familiar with that, there was this yeah. pretty, you know, shitty dude, David Korish, and he had like a cult and he... You know, I, I am not a David Koresh fan by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was a, an asshole. Um, but I do also think that the FBI, the, no, it, wasn't the, it was the ATF, I guess, the, the federal government of the United States of America murdered mm-hmm. him and his followers, you know, like m- most of his followers. I, th- I think that that was a clear example of murder and, you know, it could have been resolved much differently. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know what the easiest solution to that situation is. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that if I had a family member who was in a cult like that and, you know, and I was at risk of losing their life to it, um, you know, I would want somebody to go in and stop it or I might try to stop it myself or something. But I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I think this is a situation, a lot of these things, you know, there's no easy answer under any system. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's there's no just life is complex and there are some problems that are always going to be difficult to struggle with. And sometimes the best solutions are long term, slow solutions that require a lot of education and require a lot of, you know, uncomfortable uh, struggle over years to find the solutions. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I don't know that this is something that I I certainly don't think it's something that anarchists are uh, have a particular like worse a particularly worse uh, set of tools to deal with that situation i mean i guess because like you know you could have a system where they the government just says fuck no and they you know arrest jim jones and they arrest all the followers and they throw them in a mental hospital and they force them to you know go through treatment before they're allowed to reenter society but like that opens the door to a lot of other bullshit that could happen where they're doing the same mm-hmm. thing to anarchists or they're doing the same thing to communists and re-educating people who don't deserve to be edu- re-educated you know what i mean it creates a, a very dangerous precedent so i don't think that yeah. there's really an easy solution under any ideological framework and these are situations where we as human beings just have to do the best we can um and again like you say look at it through different lenses and try to and, and struggle through it the one thing i will say is With any kind of a difficult because, you know, there's a million abortion, uh, you know, so many different like like complicated questions, euthanasia, suicide. I mean, there's so many things. Um, And the best tool I think that we have developed as human beings to settle these problems is democracy. But with the huge asterisk that the way that democracies are designed and the way that people are acculturated and educated to participate in those democracies is very important and and, you know and and you know democracy in and of itself isn't like like i said it's not an on-off switch it's it's a there are good democracies there are bad democracies and there are societies that are uh prepared to govern themselves democratically and then i think there are a lot of people who are not prepared and need to some way or another you know become educated become acculturated to participate democratically in society, which is something that happens. I mean, like again, like a something in Rojava that I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on Rojava, uh, but one thing that they try to do is educate people on self-government. So they'll have like workshops for women. They'll have workshops in villages where they'll like teach people basically like civics classes uh, because they had a problem where um, they had a lot of problems early on when they were trying to establish this government where the people were kind of acculturated to this like hierarchical, traditional way of living and they kind of had to like break down some of those barriers. And I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but to, from what I understand, it was pretty effective, especially at getting women to empower themselves and to build secondary power structures for women. So that's a situation where, you know, we can maybe learn from what they're doing and say, if we were going to take and, and build an anarchistic project or a commune or a society or whatever, we would obviously have to somehow educate ourselves and educate each other on how to, Use, utilize, and design, and build, and participate in these systems of democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something yeah, you just no, pull out of the it, box and it, turn you know. on the switch, and it's good to go. You know.
0: Yeah. No. And I, I agree with that generally. Is um, you know, we have a subject in in Swedish uh, schools called samhällskunskap, uh, which means directly translated, it means like society knowledge or knowledge about society. Uh, it's like social studies, essentially, where you learn about different political ideologies, and you learn about how the government works, and how democracy works, and how taxes work, and, and these kind of things. Essentially, how to be a functioning member of society, basically, in relation to the power structures that exist, and 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 the government, and these things. Uh, Need to learn like how to be critical of sources, and and how to find information and, and online, and that kind of stuff. Which is a very useful subject and and i think it's it should take more importance and a part of that education is or well yeah it is but it also should be more of learning how to participate in a democratic society learning how to make your voice heard how to talk to others listen to others um, take ideas from other people how to implement those ideas, create organizations and structures, and how to function within the currently existing democratic system. Um, And I think that is a part of democracy, is educating people about how democracy works. I think Mm -hmm. maybe necessarily, uh, not necessarily while giving them propaganda about how this is the best system there is, or the best possible system, because that's, kind of a lot of what the Swedish system does is yeah. it um you know i mean like most like all education systems really is is there's propaganda and our propaganda essentially is um look at how bad russia is look at how bad america is sweden <laughs> is in the middle uh right, we right. have a very good system yeah of, right. i mean basically we were neutral during the cold war uh one of our most famous prime ministers uh olof palme he had this very famous speech on live uh, on national television where he talked about why why am i a democratic socialist why am i a social democrat and essentially he had this long very like rhetorically impressive speech uh, and i and I, I loved listening to it because the just the language and the rhetoric is is very impressive and he, he was an incredibly charismatic and talented speaker but what what the what it boiled down to is I traveled the world i went to the soviet union and although i saw great prosperity and although i saw the ideals of a society which where people work together i also saw the oppression of the common people by the state and by the party and then i traveled to america and then although i saw great prosperity and i saw riches and i saw supermarkets filled to the brim with foods i also saw the oppression of rugged individualism and capitalism. And so I went back to Sweden and I said, I am a democratic socialist, and what we need is a system which incorporates the best of these two worlds. And he was, a, for a social democrat, he was a very progressive social democrat, and he believed in state intervention in the economy, and he he didn't believe in the ideals of the free market. Um, He tried to reform the system as much as he could, really, from within the framework of, Mm of the democratic system uh, and then he was assassinated um hmm. when he came out against the vietnam war and he uh against nato and and the us involvement in the vietnam war and then he suddenly died for unexplained reasons uh it was just like shot outside a hotel or something but um
1: was he more of a? Would you do you think he was more of like a reformist communist and wanted to eventually evolve Sweden into a classless, stateless society, or do you think he was just a social democrat who thought that would be the system kind of forever, just try to balance between the two systems?
0: I'm not sure what his like long term ideals were. I think on on some level he did believe in a classless society, um, but probably. Like probably before all of that he was a patriot and he was a pragmat uh, like a pragmatic patriot. Right. Yeah. And he he believed in making Sweden like a strong nation and everyone coming together and in the short term at least he believed in class collaboration. Oh. And uh having the government and unions as like the mediators between the proletarian and the bourgeois classes. Yeah. Like he, so, he played a pretty instrumental role <laughs> that's, in... It's uh, kind
1: of what the Nazis believed too, but I oh, guess yeah. it's probably not quite the same.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, no, I mean, no, it it is very similar. Uh, yeah. Sweden took a lot of ideas from Nazi Germany, uh, a oh, lot of really? the bad ideas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did eugenics for a long time. Uh, until yeah, like everybody,
1: ladies. I guess, did. Most, most European and American, North American yeah. places did for a long time. I mean,
0: like, Sweden fucking invented race biology. Like at the University of Uppsala, like that was us. We made that, (laughs) and uh, so that whole thing is on us. Sorry, world, but um, (laughs) no. uh, He believed in class collaboration, but he he was instrumental in having unions be kind of like this core part of the workplace and of. I guess one big
1: difference is that he probably meant real like worker-led unions, because like Hitler. When Hitler was talking about unions, he was talking about I don't remember I don't remember the German word for it, but they had like state-sanctioned worker yeah, yeah, yeah. groups that were like run by the state. So I would imagine yeah, I that we had, he was more we had, talking uh, about actual independent trade unions, unions. Workers, yeah. Okay, workers, so that, that's uh, a huge unions. step up yeah. from Nazism. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I mean the the unions in Nazi Germany didn't actually represent the workers; they just represented the state. Right. So right. The, yeah, but um, I hear you. We, yeah, like we got unionization up to like 80% of the entire workforce It's just like basically everyone is unionized. And if you work, even if you're not a member of a union, you still benefit from uh, from the the union contracts. Like every workplace, in order to hire someone, they need to have a collective bargaining agreement with an associated trade union within that like industry branch or whatever. Um, Was there um, any
1: thought put into imperialism? Because I know like one major uh, critique of, you know, the Scandinavian model or Swedish model or whatever um, is, uh, I don't know. Well, I know, for instance, like in Sweden, like I read during COVID, there were like IKEA factories in Russia, which had Middle Eastern, North African workers who were in really shitty situations before COVID. And then COVID hit and they were really screwed over by COVID. You know, but this mm-hmm. was like an IKEA factor, so it was kind of a form of exporting the suffering and exporting the oh, yeah. exploitation to foreign countries. Was there any? Did that come into play with those formative ideas, or was that not really even on the radar? Or
0: um, we kind of still had all of our manufacturing in Sweden itself, so we hadn't yet okay. started offshoring uh, and, and outsourcing labor to to the third world. That kind of started happening with. You know globalization and neoliberalism and like Reagan Reaganomics coming to Europe and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in terms of imperialism, we all uh, palmer and and the social democrats in the 60s and 70s they were against the war in Vietnam and they were against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and just a lot of wars and imperialistic wars in general and and we called it out and we said that's imperialism. You can't do that. Like the mm-hmm. war, we we said the war in Vietnam is an imperialist war and we aided and we sided with North Vietnam and had to like talks with them. And we tried to, I think we tried to mediate between North and South, but it didn't really work very well, but we mostly sided with the North uh, against the U S and France and, wow. and that kind of stuff.
1: How did that, I mean, that must've been a, that must've had repercussions for Sweden, I would guess. Like I'm sure that the USA and France and the other, well, members of well, I mean,
0: my pet, Conspiracy theories, obviously, that you know our prime minister he came out and he said that's an imperialist war, uh, we're against it, we're siding with North Vietnam, and then he suddenly died.
1: Uh, ah, okay, I see. That I remember you saying that. Yeah. yeah. Did but, things change know, after that? Did uh, they stop supporting the North after that?
0: I think so. Yeah. Hmm. I th- I think we kind of we dialed down the <laughs> anti-imperialism after that.
1: I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. It's a, that's really interesting. I mean, I I would definitely would rather live under that system than the USA. Um, yeah. Although, I, you know, my biggest I guess my biggest problem with I guess imperialism is a massive problem. You know what I mean? Because it's yes. like yeah. it's great for Swedish people. But then if you're importing things <laughs> from factory countries where people are like living in slave labor conditions, it doesn't really. Yeah. It's just yeah, more and, of and a it's a, a so... it's a it's a less visible hierarchy where you have yeah. like Swedish people kind of living over these other people in these other countries. So,
0: and, and that that like, I made a video about that talking about kind of the problems of social democracy and you know, it's still a market system. It's still a capitalist system. It still relies on the exploitation of the proletariat. And there is this idea that Europe and, and Sweden is like we're post-industrial societies, mm-hmm. but we're not in any way. Yeah we're very yeah, industrial you still
1: societies have, to have stuff <laughs> yeah.
0: like all of our industry is in in uh, in China in the special economic zones in China in India uh in um uh Cambodia Bangladesh and in various yeah. african nations uh sub-saharan african nations in east africa and central africa right. um and like that's where our factories are um, right and we still rely Taiwan on is very
1: similar. I mean, I'm not as familiar with Sweden, but Taiwan has a very similar situation where, like, if you go to Taiwan, it feels very socialist. It is very socialist, but, like, Taiwan has this massive – well, you know, so the very brief history lesson is that when Chiang Kai-shek left China, the nationalists stole all the gold in China. And they brought it all mm. to Taiwan, and they set up this this country. And, like, it was basically – there were two classes. There were, like, the extremely wealthy elites, and there was the military. And mm-hmm. the military people lived in communes for, like, I think a couple of decades. Um, and like, a super communist commune. Like, I, I, I walked through one. It's, like, one of the last ones that still exists. But, like, they have, like, a communal school. They have a communal kitchen. Everyone eats at, like, the communal, uh, you know, eating area every day. It's, like, mm-hmm. a self-contained little unit. Um, and then, like, the rich people were all, like, living in the city. But anyway, so over time, it's kind of the, they've melded back together. And Taiwanese people have like one of the highest rates of entrepreneurship and basically like a lot, not most, but like a ton of Taiwanese people own a company that manufactures something in China or maybe they manufacture it in Taiwan, you know, with like exploited Taiwanese labor or imported labor from like Southeast Asia or whatever. But, you know, you have this like you have this place that looks like, you know, Shangri-La or like uh Wakanda, you know, it's like very like you walk around it's beautiful, they have lots of public, you know, resources, you could like take public bicycles, public transportation, everything's yeah. great, they have great healthcare, great schools, but like the engine that's running all of that is like exploitation that's happening mostly in China um and it kind of is this like arrangement that they have sort of worked out with China. Uh yeah. so it's it's very interesting, you know, um and it it's a great kind of PR piece for capitalism. Because you mm-hmm. can look at Taiwan and say, oh, look, Taiwan is capitalist and it's so much better than communist China. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's just, it's just interesting. I don't know, it seems to have some parallels to Sweden uh, from what yeah. you're
0: saying. Uh, Sweden is interesting. I, w- I was thinking about it earlier about kind of like when we we're talking about how certain societies would function well under anarchism and, and certain societies would function well under a more collective society and Mm -hmm. i feel like sweden is like prime like it's not a good thing but i feel i feel like system uh, sweden is like primed for a dictatorship like it's like the perfect (laughs) society for a dictatorship (laughs) why is that because for some reason there's this feeling or like i don't know if it's cultural or if it's political i don't know what it is but swedish people have like this immense trust for the government and government agencies that mm. when the government says anything, it's like, well, that's what's true. And, wow, and that's like, scary. yeah. And it's like, if the government said that if you jump off a bridge, you know, you're going to fly, I feel like people but would do start they
1: follow it. individuals like that. Like, do they trust individual politicians or do you have the skepticism no. for individual politicians?
0: No, no, no. Uh, it's only the faceless, uh, agencies. The state. Like the, yeah. yeah, like the, the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of whatever. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, so so the, that means you ministry.
1: have to become the dictator and then impose communism on Sweden. Yeah, That's like I the think best so. plan. <laughs> like even the your... prime
0: minister, even if the prime minister is someone from a party you don't agree with, he's still the prime minister. And even if yeah. you dislike him, even if you don't agree with him, if he says something, it's probably true.
1: I think that might be something because the USA used to be like that, like back in the up until maybe the I think until Nixon is what most historians say, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, before Nixon, there was a kind of a trust. And of course, I'm talking about white people, you know, like privileged (laughs) white people who were who were enjoying the um, happy accident of American prosperity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they 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 had this kind of inherent trust for the government um and then after nixon and all that shit about watergate came out then like that's when the real backlash started happening and sort of fell apart since then although there are still i don't know like trump trump probably just dynamited whatever was left of that cuz i don't th- and obama well not even it wasn't even obama's i'm not i'm no fan of obama but obviously the fact that we had a black president um eroded the trust for the presidency that a lot of white racists had do you know what i'm saying yeah. so like a lot of republicans and people who would have like even my like like i have family i'm not going to name who but i have family members who um when clinton was in the, was the president they would say like oh i hate clinton but he's still the president you still got to respect the office but then when obama mm. got elected it's like all bets were off and they were just like completely hated Obama because he was black i'm like I'm yeah. gonna make that educated guess but um anyway i mean yeah i think did america you know, used to uh, have that but
0: did you know sweden has never had a female prime minister
1: i i i don't know if i should be surprised by that or not i i don't know what the state <laughs> of like feminism is in sweden
0: the very like, a, like very progressive very feminist like all the even like uh, the liberal conservatives uh, like mm-hmm. say they're feminists and like believe in women's rights and, and everything. We don't really have like sexist political parties, like the Republican Party is like very anti abortion and stuff. Yeah, um, I want to
1: read a comment because Rusty says, Uh, is it? I definitely like yield to your, I've only been to Taiwan one time and it was for like a week, so I hope I didn't imply that I'm a Taiwan expert. <laughs> I was giving my impression and some, and the impression that I see in a lot of like news coverage of Taiwan, but I, I will read, um, as a Taiwanese, I have I have to say working class folks in Taiwan have been struggling with stagnant living conditions for some three decades as well. And it really isn't that different from how it is in the West. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, and I know working class people in Taiwan that I was staying with. And it's not like they were, like, living in the lap of luxury. But they did enjoy things like cheap public transportation and clean air. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were I did. It felt to me like a pretty nice place to live. Sort of like South Korea feels the same way to me. Um, but, you know. I, I certainly am not an expert on Taiwan. I would love to go back there longer term sometime, maybe after COVID, maybe live there for a few months or something and learn a lot more about it because it's a fascinating place. And um and the Taiwanese people I met were super, super cool. But um yeah, you probably have, have in fact, Rusty, if you ever want to have a conversation, um I do a show sometimes on my channel called Micro International, where I talk to people from around the world. You can email me at I'll put a I'll put my email address in the in the chat. Um that's a kind of open invitation to anybody from any part of the world that wants to talk about this stuff it probably will be a while because i'm about to travel for a few weeks but when i get back or maybe while i'm traveling we can have a conversation Mm -hmm. um just yeah i'd love to talk to you more about taiwan um anyway sorry i just wanted to address that because i don't want to make it feel i I was afraid i made it seem like i'm know way more about taiwan than i really do so (laughs) if rusty has any corrections please (laughs) let me know if i said anything inaccurately
0: i tried to avoid talking about Countries and what things are like in other countries. When I I just don't know that much. Yeah. Pe- well, know, I know Breadbeard uh, who
1: lives in Taiwan, and he tells me a lot of things, and he's yeah, been there for a few years. He speaks Mandarin, um. So, uh, he I, I kind of trust him a little bit, but I would obviously trust a native Taiwanese person more than white ass mm-hmm. Breadbeard. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, but I, I I do think that if if socialism were to come to sweden it would almost have to be a very centralized system and like i'm in favor of centralizing re-centralizing our our welfare system and and our public transport system and our because like our public transport system is so stupid because right now it's regional right so we have a we have a regional uh, public transportation system in uh, the the province that i live western uh, gothia right and so i can buy a train ticket to go anywhere within that region but if i want to go if i want to go to stockholm then i have to buy a train ticket from that region and and they send a train or they they have a train that goes from gothenburg to stockholm but like i yeah. can't get like a bus from like one town to the next if it passes like a regional border because public transportation uh, is handled by kropotkin
1: i think has a great it's it's very specific to what you're bringing up actually (laughs) so kropotkin talked a lot about train systems because Hmm. he said that and i'm not uh i don't know how factual this or whatever but he said that like there were certain trains i can't remember exactly which countries they were but there were certain train systems in germany i think um where the, the workers kind of managed it more. And then there were other train systems, maybe in like England, where it was like managed more by like bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what Kropotkin always said was that like, I don't know if Kropotkin said this or not, but it's like the, um, it's like the the authority of the shoemaker. You know, like if when we're talking about making shoes, a professional shoemaker, like we should probably listen to what they have to say and give them like a little bit yeah. more authority in that situation. And so like with a train system, Like, wouldn't you agree that the best thing to do is just to, like, let the people who work at a train station all day decide how the train station should be run and let the people who are, like, civil engineers and know all about – it's, like, like, we should give them a little bit more uh, uh, leeway in designing those systems, you know? And maybe, like – that's something that Kropotkin always suggested was that, like, the workers should basically – organize and design the systems themselves. So like maybe it could be mm-hmm. a centralized national train system, but it's not run by the state. No, it's run more directly by the people who work in the train system. I mean, what do you think about that idea?
0: Um, Like, like a workers cooperative, you mean?
1: Essentially it's like a workers cooperative. Yeah. I mean, it, but it would just be like a statewide workers co-op where the people who operate the trains and build the train tracks and design the train systems and everything like they are the ones that make the big decisions about with Mm -hmm. with uh, integration like you know and it that's maybe an oversimplification because obviously that would have to have integration into the community because Mm -hmm. obviously if they want to build a train track like through your neighborhood your neighborhood should have say you know what i mean like it's not i don't want to oversimplify it but the point is that like it's led it's kind of steered by the people who work within that train system i guess yeah
0: i think i think it does make sense there's also i mean there's a there can be conflict of interest, you know, like like you, the example you just brought up of um, between the people and and the workers, right? So there's there's this contradiction with uh, you have people in the workers cooperative who I don't know, I mean I don't know if they would own, but they would at least run the co-op, and then you have the workers outside of the co-op, and they're mm-hmm. in this situation pretty much powerless. Well, they wouldn't
1: have to be that. Like, give me an example of what the worker outside of the system would be that would be powerless. Because, like, well, in in the classical,
0: in the classical worker cooperative, you know, if you have like kind of a market socialist system, kind of like Yugoslavia had, you have a bunch of different companies competing with each other in a free market, but they're cooperatives. They're owned by the workers themselves, but you're still uh, oppressed by the system itself of markets and of. Uh, yeah, well, I'm talking. I'm, I'm I'm
1: talking about a post-revolutionary society, I guess. I mean, I mm. if it's a if it's within a, the framework of capitalism, then I mean, a workers cooperative would probably be better than privatization. You know, obviously. Um, yeah. You know, but yeah, I'm just saying. Within, a, if you could have a system where you have the railroad workers who generally control the way railroads function in in uh, coordination with you know, the communities that they run through and, and serve. Um, you would have, like, the garbage workers would design and control how sanitation works in accordance mm-hmm. with, you know, in, in, in coordination with the, the communities that they serve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, like, I mean, just, yeah, that's Kropotkin's Krip, Krip, answer for, like, the post-revolutionary society. Obviously, within a liberal democracy or a social democracy, um, it's going to be more there's going to be more complications. Yeah. You know, then it, yeah. Cause I guess the idea is like, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Yeah. That's that's why I don't think the cooperatives, like there are a lot of uh, libertarian socialists who think that this, the whole key to all of this is building workers cooperatives. Mm-hmm. And that if we just build enough workers cooperatives, then we can overthrow capitalism that way. And I just don't think that's true for a lot of reasons. One of them is like what you're saying, that there's all these interactions between the workers co-op and the capitalist structures that exist and it's gonna poison that well time and time again also it's just very very difficult and i know this is somebody who's owned five businesses myself it's very difficult and expensive to start a business without a lot of money and especially if you want to employ a lot of people you know that takes a lot of capital so there's a reason that everyone doesn't just start their own workers co-op it's because they don't they need starting capital which is restricted by the the capitalist owning class so anyway mm-hmm. that's kind of a di- diversion a digression but um
0: yeah uh, i mean i kind of see i don't know it, it, it's interesting because on the one hand I, I do agree with i guess you might call them almost technocratic ideals where you have experts kind of being having having authority in how to run certain industries and how to run certain workplaces and that the workers themselves should have democracy in the workplace and should be able to run workplaces more or less how they see fit. On the other hand, I think public transport is one of those things where it's it's like healthcare, it's like education. It's it's a public need. And it's in the interest of the entire population that it runs smoothly and it runs in a way that benefits the people and not necessarily that it runs in a way that benefits the workers of the railroads, right? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. And that's why you would have to have democratic frameworks that take all of that into consideration. But as far as like, mm-hmm. I think that the working hours of a railroad employee or whether or not a railroad employee should be, you know, fired for drinking on the job or whatever, I, I don't feel like that should be up to the city council um, mm-hmm. as yeah. much as it should be up to the workers that they that work in that industry and understand that industry. I feel like there, and there has to be balance and there has to be, and this all has to be worked out democratically. And it's not going to be like, again, I don't think it would be the same in every single community, the way that it's balanced and structured and organized. And there will yeah. probably be, there will probably be trial and error and, and lessons learned and mistakes made and failures. You know what I mean? But, um, you mm-hmm. know, cause you're designing a new system of society that no one's ever in with, you know, in this modern context, nobody's ever tried before. So I don't think that it would be perfect right off the bat, you know, but I'm just saying the generally speaking, I think workers should control their own workplaces in, in their yeah. own work lives. I think that's kind of the point of communism, uh, in my opinion. So um, or it's one of the big points of communism. Um, mm-hmm. So like, OK, like, like, let's let's get into the I guess I, I have some questions for you about. Um, you know, like your ideal post-revolutionary mm-hmm. society, because. I would assume that as a Marxist and as a communist, you want society to eventually evolve. You want the state to wither away eventually and for there to eventually be Mm -hmm. a classless, stateless society. Am I correct in that assumption?
0: Yeah. The idea is that the state and the tools of the state and and all the institution of the state and of the government uh, over time become depoliticized and the 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 usage of the state becomes less and less necessary over time. Uh, more power is put to the people more directly, and the necessity of the state becomes less and less over time until eventually you wake up one day and you think, oh, yeah, there's no state anymore.
1: Yeah. Essentially. Right, yeah. right, right. It's, right. A, it's what, a long, what kind of it's like, a long uh... process. Yeah, it's cer- certainly a long process, but I think that what might be useful for you, as a Marxist-Leninist, is to one I'm of the not reasons you might Leninist. want to study. I'm sorry, as a Marxist, <laughs> I'm just a. Uh, I lump you all. I lump you all together into one big hat, and I call it Marxist-Leninist. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I take great offense
1: um, that. Yeah, but anyway, sorry. I I, I retract my statement. But um, uh, one of the things that might serve you as a Marxist who does want to even if it's beyond your lifetime, but you you do mm-hmm. eventually hope that society will de- develop in that way. I think anarchism, you know, we're talking about building a classless stateless society and what that might yeah. look like. And it might give you kind of a, at least spark your imagination for what you might be working towards. Even if you think it's unrealistic to do it as early as I do. Like what I always say is the real difference between like a Marxist, a Marxist, I'm trying not to say Marxist Leninist between, between somebody like you <laughs> and somebody uh-huh. like me I think it comes down to uh, priorities, timing, um, strategy, but I mm-hmm. think that in the uh, our, our long-term vision for humanity is very much the same. Yeah, I think there. I think there's very little difference in what we want, and I agree with you. I think that it's going to be. I think I will be long dead and buried before we have a classless, stateless society that's truly democratic, where. We, and again like Rudolf rocker said we will never eradicate all of the hierarchies mm-hmm. but you know even when even to come close to like a real truly living breathing anarchistic society where we all buy into the principles of anarchism I think that is decades and decades if not centuries away yeah. um, maybe I'm wrong you know but that's that's my my there's no way to predict it but that's my my guess um but we do have to um, I do I do think that we have to start grappling with a lot of questions really quickly. That we don't have time to think about. Like, so things that concern me are things like security technology and the yeah. fact that we now have drones, we have face recognition technology, we have all of these mm-hmm. incredible, like, incredible applications of artificial intelligence that can be used by a state to brutally oppress people, yeah. like, hopelessly oppress people. It's not here quite yet, but in 10 or 15 or 20 years, if a state, you know, looking at the way that states, the technology is evolving. If the state wants to just completely dominate a society, I think the technology will be here very soon. And that's not even getting Mm. into things like genetic manipulation and the fact that like, you know, transhumanism under capitalism is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be like Gattaca, where we're going to have like designer babies and shit. And then the working class is just going to become like, you know, like completely suppressed genetically. I mean, that stuff terrifies me. The global climate change stuff, we got to get our hands around that very quickly. Yeah. Um, and one thing I always say is that the, the farther forward in the future we get without having something like a revolution, without having something like an abolishment of capitalism, the more of a tanky I'm going to become yeah. because we're getting closer and closer to eradication. It's no longer you know, the whole thing about socialism or barbarism. I think it's like socialism or extinction. I've seen people – I didn't come up with that. But socialism or extinction mm. is really what we're looking at right now and really within the scale of our lifetimes.